AU professor Joseph Turigian's prestige manipulation and coercion, elite power struggles in the Soviet Union and China after Stalin and Mao, is in pole position for the best China talk book of 2022. Books that deeply engage with both Soviet and CCP sources around elite politics, like, kind of never come out nowadays. And I, for one, am deeply grateful that Joseph, one of the few folks on the planet with the training, language skills, and, like, crazy motivation to do this sort of work, was able to produce this sort of scholarship. As someone who is biased towards history books and really dislikes political science and the flimsy regressions that accompany nearly all of these papers, watching Joseph craft a theoretical argument with deep historical investigation made me reconsider just how powerful theory could be and uh, led me to get kind of annoyed with all the great historians I read who haven't gone the extra mile to try to apply their knowledge more systematically than the individual case that they look at. Joseph puts forward convincing revisionist interpretations of Khrushchev's triumph after Stalin's death, had me reconsider my conception of what the Gang of Four was up to after Mao died, and made me really feel bad for Hua Guofeng getting done dirty by Dunk. His new model of how power transitions really work in authoritarian countries with weak institutions left me more scared than hopeful for what happens after she exits states left. Joseph's work is the sort of scholarship that governments and philanthropies need to be cultivating. Let a thousand Joseph Terigians bloom. I hope this episode gives students a sense of just how interesting this sort of research is to conduct and how increasingly relevant it is, especially as great power relations get into scarier and scarier waters. Uh, Co-hosting today is Lizzie, a video journalist at Wall Street TV, a New York-based independent language media outlet focused on Chinese politics and economics. Check her out on YouTube. Search Wall Street TV. It's great. Joseph Terigian, welcome to China Talk. Thank you for having me. So, Joseph, how do other leading political scientists think that power transitions work in autocracies? So there is a trend within political science to look at authoritarian regimes as essentially systems of exchange, where you have an individual who has a policy platform, who makes promises about patronage, who then goes out to a group within the elite, the so-called selectorate, and convinces some coalition to support them as leader. And some political scientists have said that during moments of succession, policy is even more important because you have these entrepreneurs who, during moments of transition, when things have broken up a little bit, have an opening where they can use that opportunity to win your support to this policy platform that they have. And what's your model of how this all plays out? So surprisingly, what the new evidence has shown about the transitions after Stalin and Mao is that it wasn't this story of real policy differences among clearly defined competing factions working in some defined institutional arena whereby you could summon some some sort of coalition that would vote you into power. But actually, it was a different story, one about personal antagonisms, different views about your historical contributions to the revolution and the regime after victory, manipulation of ambiguous rules, the use of compromising uh, information about your opponents, and also everyone was cultivating the power ministries, the political police and the military. A knife fight with weird rules, as you say. Political scientists and also area study scholars have often pointed towards Khrushchev and Deng as these institutionalizers who really cared about collective leadership and creating new guardrails to prevent someone like Stalin and Mao from happening again. And what I argue in my book is that, in fact, we shouldn't think about these moments as moments of institutionalization. In fact, institutionalization failed. But also, 
I don't want to over-argue my point and say that institutions didn't matter at all. So what we see is not people shooting at each other, literally, at Politburo meetings, but that there were some constraints set by institutions. So, for example, we don't see leaders going so far beyond the pale with regards to blatant violation of even any sense of constraints and uh, just simply arresting uh, their opponents. And they go through extraordinary hoops after their victory to portray what they did as being more legitimate than actually what the true story was. Joseph, before we get into the cases, can you talk a little bit about how one does research on uh, Soviet and Chinese Politburo fights? So, unfortunately, when it comes to elite politics, the world files its information rather miscellaneously. And you can't just go (laughs) to a defined set of archives, collect the material, and write it up. And... That's increasingly the case in China, where even the regional archives, where people used to go and were able to get Politburo and Central Committee documents, is increasingly restricted. So essentially, you have to think about it as a detective. And you have to be uncomfortable with yourself and continuously ask yourself whether or not there are some other ways that you hadn't thought about that you could use. So for example, when I wrote this book, I used everything from archival documents from Russia and China. But with regards to the China case specifically, it was sort of a a dog's breakfast of different types of materials that included everything from documents that are still only intended for internal circulation, but through various means have ended up at American universities. Uh, I've used books that were published in Hong Kong outside of the censorship of the mainland, and that included both really high-quality party history works written by historians in the PRC, as well as memoir literature by people who were former high-ranking officials. And even within the PRC, for many years, they were publishing high-quality material, especially in party history journals like Yanwang Tuanqiu. And then by talking to party historians, very often I realized that I had something wrong And so by reaching out to them and getting course corrections, that also was extraordinarily useful to make sure that I was on the right track. Yeah, the the sort of the moments in your book where you're like two party historians actually told me X seem to be these big these big light bulb moments that went off in your um, went off in your head. What was the kind of relationship that you guys developed? Are they confused that there's this American looking into these sorts of things? Uh, I don't know if they were confused or not, but. I think that these individuals who are doing party research in China are extraordinarily self-reflective, extraordinarily intelligent, have a deep moral commitment to doing good research. And because there is so much material in the United States that is important for the kind of research that they do, but uh, isn't as easily accessible within China, uh, they do have sometimes uh, interesting questions about certain types of material like the ones that I just described to you that are available in American institutions. Oh, gotcha. So, so there's actually a, like a, an exchange of information. It's not, it's not just one way. Well, it's certainly, I'm learning more from them than they are from me. Let's be absolutely serious. And there's one thing that I mentioned in the acknowledgements, and I mean this very seriously, which is that even though my book is a work of political science and history, I also very seriously consider it a work of translation because the research that I did would have been absolutely impossible without reading the articles in places like Yen Huang Tuanqiu or the books that were published in Hong Kong 
And then the extraordinary help that I got from a variety of different party historians uh, that uh, really uh, helped me get onto a better track. And I also want to say that when I started to learn about how to do party research from Roderick McFarquhar, who sort of inspired me to do this kind of thing, he told me a story about how on one occasion a party historian criticized him for getting something wrong. And he said, well, of course I got it wrong. I didn't know about it. And I thought that was one of the best things I've ever heard because it's this recognition that party history is necessarily an iterative process and that because it's so ambiguous and because you are looking at so many different pieces of information from different sources, all of which need to be contextualized in different ways, necessarily there are areas for interpretation that will get better as people think about that material more and as more material becomes available. So, you know, ambiguity, rummaging around for documents, um, uh, you know, having having sort of offhand conversations with um, with party historians who port, point you this way or that is not the sort of paper that generally makes it into uh, leading political science uh, uh, journals in the U.S. And it's not the kind of like well-trod path for tenure uh, in the 21st century. How do you see sort of this methodology, uh, you know, lining up and speaking to uh, more uh, more quantitative methods, which have been uh, really dominant over the past few decades? Well, it's certainly the case that one of the reasons I wanted to do this kind of research was that I had noticed that for many years, there weren't a lot of scholars doing research, like the research done by Frederick Tevis, Warren Sung, Roderick McFarquhar, Ezra Vogel. And I saw a niche there not just because that research wasn't being done, but because even they often shied away from making theoretical conclusions about their findings. So I thought that it would be a worthwhile endeavor to pursue the deep, rigorous, empirical research that they did, but still be able to summarize what I found in a way that was meaningful to broader discussions within the discipline about the nature of authoritarian regimes. And I think you're absolutely right that both within political science and history, the kind of research endeavor that I described to you might strike some people as not scientific. And what I want to emphasize is you can still do the research that I do and have it still be rigorous in the sense that if you spend months and months of your life being diligent about finding material and spending often days at a time reading stuff that has absolutely nothing relevant to what you're doing because you're looking for those needles in a haystack that are meaningful, but also that you organize the evidence in a way that supports one hypothesis or another, and that by presenting it, you can allow other people to, as I just said before, you know, come to different judgments, either because they read the evidence differently or because they had new evidence. There is still room there for a meaningful conversation that hopefully by being part of a broader community of scholars will get us closer to uh, whatever the right answer is, even though, you know, we won't ever be perfect about finally getting to the, you know, exactly, exactly what happened. We can get closer. Um, so, Joseph, why is answering questions about the nature of authoritarian uh, regime so important today? You know, one of the interesting things about Roderick McFarquhar was I noticed that very often, no matter whom he was in the room with, whether it was political scientist, historian, economist, journalist, policymaker, think tanker, 
that I always thought he had the most interesting things to say. And I reflected on why exactly that was the case, because very often he wasn't sort of eating the sawdust of people's daily on a daily basis to tease out different Tifon expressions to see how things were changing. And he wasn't reporting from China or, or, or anything like that, even though he certainly had contacts there. But I think that what the kind of research he did allowed him to do was to have a general sense for how things worked and also an ability to ask whether something made sense. It gave him a sensitivity to when there was a variety of evidence that we could see from the outside that actually there could be all kinds of different hypotheses for, for what was going on. So I think that that's, that's useful, especially because if you look at the track record that people have had looking at China from the outside over the years. And Frederick Tevis, who is absolutely brilliant, has written a piece about the black box of Chinese politics. And what he does is, using all of the wonderful new research he's been doing for decades, reveals that actually most of what was being written about while those events were transpiring were wrong and why that was the case. So a good sense of the mistakes that we've made in the past, a, a, a theoretical view of how parties tend to work, uh, I think are exceptionally valuable as we face these systems that, that are so opaque that, as you see in the book that I, that I wrote, that extraordinarily often, even extremely high-ranking officials within the system read signals incorrectly. So Joseph, I just have one quick question. As someone who's um, looking into the black box all day long and, you know, who occasionally also peruse people's daily, what's a better way to build intuition about what's actually going on within the Chinese system? What's your way of building that kind of intuition you were talking about? Well, often people will look at expressions in the Chinese media and infer the existence of power struggles. Now, I want to be very clear that elite politics in China is a tough game and that people are constantly maneuvering. But that when we look at Chinese history, we don't tend to see these formulations as attacks on the top leader. And that actually the use of those different expressions uh, very often are misinterpreted even within the elite. So that we need to be extraordinarily careful uh, when we're looking at those uh, types of uh, material uh, to be sensitive to just how much we don't know to help us as we, as we adjudicate those different hypotheses. Okay. All right. Well, with that as a, um, uh, with that as an opener, Joseph, let's turn to uh, 1950s Moscow. So Stalin dies, set the scene. What are the, who are the players and what are they competing for? So shortly before Stalin died, he was very clearly maneuvering to promote to the leadership a new group of younger officials and undermine the political power of the older revolutionaries, the old guard. But almost immediately after Stalin dies, there was an alliance between the older revolutionaries and the sort of uh, middle-aged uh, Soviet uh, leaders and pushed out that younger generation who would ultimately have to wait until 1964 uh, and the removal of Khrushchev. Um, 
So Joseph, uh, let's let's introduce our our cast of characters here. Who are they? What are their sort of strengths and weaknesses, and what different strategies um, were they pursuing in the uh, initial uh, in the in, in the initial period after uh, Stalin's death? So you had a group of individuals who were split by the legacies of the Stalinist era, and one of those was the habit of. Stalin using compromising material against his opponents. And everyone understood that the biggest danger to them was who controlled that kind of information and who used it against them. There was also tension among different generations. So you had the old revolutionaries who had known Lenin very closely, who had been very prominent figures since the establishment of the regime. And then you had those younger people like uh, Khrushchev and Malenkov, who had been rising, especially during Stalin's later years. And so you had these different generations and you had this legacy of distrust that was a result of the role of the political police and compromising material. And also a system whereby the rules were so ambiguous that nobody felt secure that in a potential power struggle, they would have the opportunity to sort of make their case in a stable and secure fashion. So how does Khrushchev ultimately come out on top? What are the, what in particular are the tactics he uses? So Khrushchev was a surprising ultimate victor. He was not seen as one of the most likely figures at the moment of Stalin's death to ultimately emerge as the dominant leader from 1957 to 1964. And what's also surprising is that he did not have that cachet that somebody like Molotov had had. And as we see in the China case, you know, what you had contributed to the revolutionary project and when was sort of the currency of where you fit within the party hierarchy and your authority. And so when we see that Khrushchev, despite not being on top, still ultimately becoming the top figure, and also the situation in China where, where those old authority relations were reestablished uh, after the Cultural Revolution, it really is an interesting puzzle about how this individual was able to succeed. And so it used to be understood that Khrushchev was able to emerge triumphant because he created this coalition of reformers who wanted less centralization, who wanted a fuller account of the uh, crimes of the Stalin era. He's someone who empowered the Central Committee by providing them policies and patronage that they wanted so that they would support him as part of this coalition within the elite. But that's not quite the game that Khrushchev ended up playing. That's that's not how, how he won. And uh, Anastas Mikoyan, who was... Uh, Khrushchev ally at this time in 1957 uh, when Khrushchev fought off a challenge by the majority of the presidium, which is what the Politburo was called, he said that politics isn't about math. And what he was saying was you know, it's not a system of a group of people who are always given the right to make a vote and that's that. And so what Khrushchev did was he used compromising material, compromat, extraordinarily effectively he manipulated institutions. So in order to defeat Beria, he had him arrested and then organized everything in a perfect way so that the Central Committee uh, was forced essentially to support that decision. 
when he was the minority uh, on the presidium in 1957, he said, I'm not going to accept this decision. I want the entire central committee to make this choice, which was unheard of in the history of Soviet politics. And he also very clearly allied himself with the military. So both in 1953, he allied uh, with Zhukov to arrest Beria. And then in 1957, Zhukov was the one who essentially saved Khrushchev. He was the one who was able to help Khrushchev maneuver for time so that the Central Committee could be summoned. Uh, he was the one who read the Ride Act at the, at the subsequent Central Committee plenum by reading all of this extraordinarily damaging, compromising material that Khrushchev had created. Uh, and the way that he talked about his position during the crisis made it seem that the military was, was ready to uh, protect Khrushchev. And what was, what was Zhukov's motivation here? So, so Zhukov was an interesting political phenomenon in the 1950s because, as I was saying, in both the Soviet Union and China, what you had contributed to the revolution, what you had contributed uh, to the establishment of the regime was seen as extraordinarily powerful political currency. But in the Soviet Union in the 1950s, there was also a very deep respect for those individuals who had defeated the Nazis in World War II. And so we know that Stalin during his later years was afraid of the respect that Zhukov had accrued because of his role in the war. And then Zhukov in the 1950s, of course, uh, allied uh, with, with Khrushchev was powerful, not just because he was able to command uh, the Soviet army, but because he had so much respect and cachet, uh, martial prestige, uh, because he had been the person who had uh, taken Berlin. So in 1953, there was certainly some skepticism on Zhukov's part towards the political police, right? He had these personal antagonisms uh, against Beria because of the sense that he had been spied upon and, and mistreated uh, and had spent so many years uh, fearing what kind of compromising material he might have had. And then in 1957, what's curious there is we see evidence that actually the anti-party group thought that Zhukov might come to their side. And the reason they thought that was because Khrushchev was arrogating power to himself and violating collective leadership. So they suspected that Zhukov might play a role there. But I think that Khrushchev was able to pull Zhukov to his side, again, because of the story of personal antagonisms and compromising material. And, and Molotov, who, of course, had been a high-ranking official for much of the Stalinist era, there was a lot of compromising material on him. Uh, and Zhukov believed that he had bloodied his hands and had also mistreated the military during the war against Nazi Germany. So there was a sense of personal antagonism towards Molotov because of his historic role in the Soviet Union, especially with regards to the purges. So that is one of the reasons that I believe Zhukov uh, decided to support Khrushchev after all. The Stalin secret speech. What was Khrushchev doing? And, and, and what were the ramifications of him uh, of him trashing Stalin's legacy? So what's important to remember about the secret speech is that before Khrushchev made those remarks, there was a consensus within the very top party hierarchy that something needed to be done about Stalin. And there were two reasons for that. The first was there were all of these rehabilitations, uh, reversals of verdicts against people who had been condemned during the Stalinist era. And so you need to have a reason for why all of these people had been treated so poorly. And if you didn't have something to say about Stalin, that would have been very hard to do. And the other reason was that this was the first Congress since Stalin's death. And there was 
a fear that if they did not take the initiative and say something about Stalin, that they would lose control of the situation and that they might be confronted somewhere on down the line about why they hadn't done something about those crimes that, that they had been learning about increasingly as they were investigating these rehabilitations. There was a narrow difference on the question of whether or not Khrushchev's triumph, excuse me, Stalin's triumph should also be discussed to sort of contextualize his so-called mistakes. And so when Khrushchev made that speech, it was so negative that it created a sense in society that Stalin was being completely rejected. But almost immediately after that speech, we have to remember that Khrushchev backtracked and that by the time of 1957, he was declaring himself to be a Stalinist and, and emphasizing that there was no differences within uh, the top political elite on the question of Stalin. So he had essentially made a role reversal uh, by the time of 1957 and was not portraying himself as someone who was opposed to Stalin. Yeah, I mean, it's it it's crazy. You have these quotes about like Yugoslavia making fun of him for criticizing Stalin. All of these Russians in their memoirs saying, oh, like we actually think that what the Chinese said after Stalin's death was a lot better um, than how than how Khrushchev put it. Um, it well, that's very important, too, because on the one hand, as I said, the differences over Stalin weren't as fundamental as people have often previously thought. That's one thing. Another important thing to remember is how much Khrushchev reversed himself after the secret speech and portrayed himself as a Stalinist and denied it that there were any differences within the elite. But also, even if people were perceiving a difference between Khrushchev and others, he, he did not necessarily have the more popular position, yeah. right? Which means that to say that this was a victory of an anti-Stalinist versus a pro-Stalinist is made much more problematic by, by those pieces of context. And also, when it comes to Stalin, we have to remember there are different elements of Stalinism or anti-Stalinism. One was the rehabilitations, right? And in fact, Molotov was the individual who was in charge of the rehabilitation committee. And it was after the anti-party group was defeated that a lot of the rehabilitations slowed down. And in fact, on any prominent case with regards to the rehabilitations, we don't have any evidence that Molotov had a difference of opinion uh, with Khrushchev. So, so taking a step back here, what is the uh, what is the important takeaway that you know you actually didn't see a lot of policy daylight between um, Khrushchev and everyone else uh, running for um, uh, grab grabbing for the ring? Yeah, yeah. So, so it begs the question, right? If you don't see these fundamental policy disputes and people aren't trying to defeat each other by creating a more popular policy, then what is it actually all about? And the question, I think, as the new evidence shows, is that it was about power. And it was about Khrushchev not paying respect to collective leadership, not paying respect to the different opinions, even on tactics, uh, narrow tactics uh, that people within the leadership had hoped for. That by 1957, what we don't see is a neo-Stalinist resurgence, but that these individuals were afraid that Khrushchev was going to go first and remove them and that they were uh, their backs were pushed up against the wall and they needed to do something. And of course, the group that, allied itself were all very different and it all taken very different positions on different policies over time. Uh, so to say that this was a clear uh, case of competing policy platforms, I think is incorrect. And we see a very interesting statement by uh, Mikoyan at the, at the Central Committee Plenum uh, that saw the defeat of the anti-party group that, you know, he also admitted that there wasn't really a policy factional story here, but that there were the 
incipient signs of one. It was a sort of blame attempt to cover up what, what he knew was, was, you know, a problematic position for Khrushchev as he, as he was engineering the defeat of these individuals. So Joseph, just one follow-up question on that. I think you're right that uh, very little uh, about those elite struggles actually depends on the merit of policy platforms, so to speak. So, you know, if it is not about whether a policy is successful or not, what are the determinants of the ultimate success or failure of those elite struggles? You know, if I were to ask you to come up with a laundry list of necessary and sufficient conditions to, you know, to win out in those elite struggles, what are some of the, you know, the top five or top 10 conditions you can think of? So the most powerful tools upon which you could draw would include things like your own personal prestige and reputation based on what you had contributed, as I said earlier, to the revolution or uh, during war. Uh, another would be your control over compromising material, whether or not you could use personal antagonisms about who had done what to whom, you know, during both the Mao and Stalin eras to uh, rally people uh, to you based on those continuing suspicions, how good you are at manipulating these ambiguous rules and uh, how, how you can maneuver and either mischaracterize what other people actually think whether you can, you know, create a fait accompli and make it harder for people to actually present their views. Uh, and then also whether or not you've, you've successfully cultivated the political police and the military, because in a situation where rules are ambiguous, the arbiter of which rules are going to be enforced ultimately are the people with the guns. But I also want to mention too, that even though real policy debates should not be seen as, you know, decisive in these power struggles, what we do see often is a leader pretending that there is a policy difference when there isn't really one there, or taking a narrow tactical difference and supersizing it and then using it as a weapon to hurt the opponent. And what's interesting is that sometimes when you create this policy wedge that's essentially airsats uh, to hurt somebody else, it doesn't even really matter whether you have the more popular position, right? Because if you have the initiative and you have other things to draw upon, it's just another way of coming up with a, a tool uh, to hurt someone when ultimately it's about something a little bit different than as you're portraying it based on this sort of fake policy story. Right. Just to, you know, follow up on that, um, I would imagine that, you know, if I'm to launch a attack against someone um, in the high um, country, I wanted to have a sense of how many people are with me versus how many people are, are, are not with me. I hate to use the word alliance, but how do you, you know, how does one actually gauge that kind of interest or loosely speaking coalitions or, or factions within the, the, the ruling elite class? So it would be an overstatement to say that you wouldn't care how many supporters you have in the Politburo or the Central Committee. Obviously, these leaders thought about those types of issues. But that needs to be contextualized in very important ways, right? So, for example, in 1976, during the preparations to arrest the Gang of Four, there were conversations among the plotters about whether or not the Gang of Four should be confronted at a meeting, the so-called meeting option, or whether they should be simply arrested and confined. Now, if you go with the meeting option, you could tell a story about what you're doing as being more legitimate because uh, you're at least pretending to be more 
in accordance with these ambiguous party rules. But at the same time, you do give your opponents a chance to turn the situation around, right? So in the Chinese case, half of the Politburo Standing Committee were members of the Gang of Four, while the other two were not. And one of them, Ye Jianing, had been already pushed aside generally by Mao Zedong. Uh, the gang were outnumbered on the Politburo, but not just, but, you know, they still had a significant contingent there. But what wasn't clear at all was whether the Central Committee would rally to the gang's side if at a Politburo meeting they said, this is illegitimate, uh, you are confronting us with inappropriate charges, we want the Central Committee to adjudicate us. That could really lead to a situation that got out of control. And what's interesting is that the reason they did decide to arrest them and preclude the possibility for the Central Committee to rally was they looked and specifically referenced the 1957 case in the Soviet Union, whereby a majority of the Presidium had confronted Khrushchev, but Khrushchev ultimately was able to turn things around by empowering the Central Committee. Now, it's possible that many people within the Presidium actually thought the Central Committee would have supported them. So there was another story there about why the Central Committee did ultimately decide to support Khrushchev, and it had to do with the military, it had to do with this compromising material. But what I'm saying is it's not really a story of math and coalitions and, you know, a defined group that you need to cultivate because there are these contingent elements inherent to the ambiguity of these rules such that the maneuvering, right, and the sort of the tricks that you can play in these situations often can make that number story less decisive than some people might think. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like if you can pick the battlefield on which to fight, um, as long as you're the one who makes the first move, you tend to have an advantage in these situations, it seems. Right. It's not just the story of, of math, to use uh, Mika Yan's terms. Why ultimately um, did the Gang of Four get the boot? What were the considerations, uh, you know, before they decided the venue? Um, why, were, um, why were Hua and others convinced that this needed to happen? So when Mao died, he left a legacy of mistrust among different generations and people who had played different roles within the Cultural Revolution. So the Game of Four, which included Mao's wife, Jiang Qing, and then Zhang Chunxiao, Wang Hongwen, and Yao Wenyuan, were shortly arrested after Mao's death and were blamed to have committed the worst excesses of the Cultural Revolution. And of course, that decision was made by Huang Guofeng, who was Mao's initial successor uh, and who relied very heavily on the bodyguard regiment under Wang Dongsheng uh, and uh, the military as an ultimate guarantor that the move against the gang uh, would, be, would be successful. So, so why did he make this move? So people often used to think that the move was because the gang were this very closely tight-knit group with linkages to fellow radicals in the provinces and who refused to work with the old revolutionaries entirely and who were inherently leftist and radical and had no intention of working with anyone else. But what the new evidence shows is that the, the, the so-called gang actually by the time of their arrest, we're not working in concert uh, in extraordinarily close terms, and that they had even been sending out 
uh, feelers to the old revolutionaries and uh, uh, other members of the old guard and doing sort of self-criticisms. And we have very striking uh, evidence from the archives now of, of Zhang Qing doing sort of apologies and, and, and saying that even though we're criticizing Deng now, uh, in 1976, that doesn't mean that, you know, all of the old revolutionaries uh, are bad, so to speak. So the, the gang, I think are, uh, much, are a much more interesting story than just this, uh, sort of characterized version that we often, uh, uh, read when we, when we, uh, when we look at the gang before. And Joseph, do you think this is because they saw blood in the water or I guess they saw their own blood in the water and sort of knew that this was coming and we're trying to hedge a little bit or, um, or what, what exactly was motivating, you know, John King to say stuff like, you know, we actually need to think deeply about the 30% that was wrong in the cultural revolution. Well, there's a few important things to keep in mind, right? So by the mid 1970s, essentially the cultural revolution was over. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in the early stages of the Cultural Revolution, obviously there were mass struggle sessions, persecution of of, of cadres, but that was ended in this uh, extraordinarily violent process. Uh, and Mao uh, ultimately uh, never quite made a full synthesis of what the Cultural Revolution was supposed to be. And in fact, for many years, criticized the so-called anarchists and leftists who had ruined uh so much of his cultural revolution and, and uh, he characterized them as not actually being the cultural revolution, but there was never this sort of programmatic statement for what the cultural revolution was. So in Mao's later years, he wanted to make sure that the legacy of the cultural revolution wasn't rejected, but he also wanted to move away from that era of, of total anarchy. And that's why Deng Xiaoping was brought back to power, of course, in 1975. Now, What's interesting is that, as, as I was saying, authority within the party tended to reflect views of your contributions to the revolution. That was sort of the currency of power. Now, during the Cultural Revolution, there was a new set of authority relations based on how much you contributed to the Cultural Revolution. And so it's sort of mirrored in somewhat curious ways. The old guard, and when they joined the revolution, what battles they fought. In the Cultural Revolution, you know, how soon you 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 rallied to, um, to this campaign, uh, and how, how much, you know, you contributed to it. But of course, since the cultural revolution was so widely seen as a disaster, that latter cachet was problematic for a lot of reasons, right? So what we see the gang of four doing is, you know, recognizing that rectification is happening, that Mao himself is on board with rectification, not explicitly, uh, opposing every element of it, but also knowing that the antagonisms that had been created during the Cultural Revolution left you extremely vulnerable. And that the fact that Mao was still alive and was invulnerable, you know, kept you in office in the meantime. But I think they recognized that by being exclusionary and offensive, that uh, that was not a model that would allow them to persist. So that's why I think we see by the uh, late Cultural Revolution, certainly tensions and push and pull uh, but we sh we we shouldn't completely disregard the extent to which, you know, these four individuals were aware of at least, um, you know, some element of usefulness to a more co-optation story and, uh, towards the old revolutionaries. So the gang, we have this crazy trial. Everyone search YouTube 
for um, uh, Gang of Four trial if you want your mind to be blown. Um, so before we move on from the Gang of Four, I just want to um, just some, some 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 tidbits I really loved in Joseph's books. We have, uh, you know, to illustrate the Gang of Four not necessarily having each other's backs. Uh, before everything went down for them. Uh, Jiang Cheng is inviting everyone to watch movies at her house, but no one comes. Um, I can't think of anyone I would least rather want to watch a movie with in history than Jiang Cheng, but um, uh, apparently uh, people put up with it for a few decades before they didn't have to anymore. Um, and then lastly, uh, when this sort of real isolation starts to kick in, you have these um, uh, investigators before the trial of the Gang of Four making fun of Zhang, saying, you know, why didn't you have any friends? And she's screaming, I still have friends. I have true friends. Um, I, I keep, I, I feel like I talk about this every month, but like the movie needs to be made. Uh, it's. Yeah. Just to react to that, you know, I, I included those anecdotes not to make Zhang Qing a joke because I think we should take Zhang Qing seriously. Sure. And the story about the movies I used to show that the Gang of Four maybe one of the most famous so-called factions in Chinese history weren't actually as close-knit as the reputation often suggests, right? And in terms of whether or not uh, Zhang Qing had friends, you know, what's interesting about her is one of the things that Mao really respected about her was how tough she was, right? And this is one of the reasons Mao thought Zhou Enlai would never be a good successor. He thought that Zhou Enlai just didn't have that, that cutthroat attitude that he thought was necessary for a top leader, right? And so that raises all kinds of interesting ways of thinking about elite politics, this idea that Mao thought that only somebody who could be brutal could actually, you know, be, be suited. But, you know, when it comes to Jiang Qing, one of the things that was so challenging for her to manage was she was seen as, you know, one of the symbols of the Cultural Revolution. So it was hard for her to move away from the memories of, you know, what people had experienced because she was... Uh, because of her reputation, the fact that she was a woman, as, as you'll see in the book, there's all kinds of gendered language about her uh, that she faced her entire life. In fact, uh, she told an interviewer to read this uh, article written by Lu Xun about character assassination and said that this was, you know, a secret to understanding me. So one of the things that Zhang uh, Cheng you know, we should, we should keep in mind about her was that one of her strengths was, was, was this toughness as Mao saw it. Uh, but at the same time, it was hard for her to bring people to support her for reasons that included her association with the cultural revolution, character assassination, her, her gender, uh, uh, and also just this inherent toughness was a sort of double, you know, double-edged sword for her. So, um, Zhang Qing, I think in a lot of ways was, a, was a very interesting political figure can you do the you had some riff about how like her whole life was character assassination can you do that yeah so we have to keep in mind that when uh jiang Qing was uh acting in shanghai uh the tabloids there were often savage towards uh women who were in the entertainment industry and she went to Yan'an at a pretty early date. And as I was saying, you know, when you went to Yan'an, when you joined the party, it was really, really, really important in this political culture. But she didn't get to Yan'an as early as a lot of the other women. She didn't join the revolution quite as early. So there was, there was skepticism within some of the old guard when Mao decided to marry Zhang Qing. 
especially because his previous wife had so much more uh, revolutionary prestige. And we see throughout the Cultural Revolution that Jiang Qing-Atrim was brutal, and she certainly could be brutal, was when she was targeting people who remembered her from her earlier days and who uh, might be able to, you know, dig up this dirt on her. We also know that uh, uh, she had been briefly in prison, uh, and even though there's no evidence to suggest that she had betrayed the CCP, having something like that on your record makes you very vulnerable, right? So, as I was saying, at the end of the Cultural Revolution, this use of compromising material was extraordinarily important, extraordinarily powerful, uh, and Jiang Qing was, was, was aware of that challenge. It ended up ultimately playing a very big role. All right. So turning to uh, chapter two in our uh, late 1970s CCP uh, battle royale, um, what was Hua's game uh, and why uh, and, and why did why, why was Dung not along for the ride? So when the Gang of Four was defeated, Deng Xiaoping was still under house arrest. And so what you had was these individuals in charge that were a mix of old revolutionaries, but also younger people who had skyrocketed to very prominent positions during the Cultural Revolution. But these younger people were not inveterate leftists, not radicals, and they saw a common cause with the old revolutionaries. And so we see Hua Guofang supporting the rehabilitation of Deng Xiaoping, supporting the return to work of many other figures, including Xi Jinping's father, Xi Jinping. And there was a common belief within the leadership that the regime was in trouble and that unless they moved very quickly to change the situation, it would be dangerous. So there was a consensus within the elite that reform was necessary. So what, what sort of steps did, did he take? So, for example, people often say that Deng Xiaoping was the individual who supported the special economic zones and approved the plans of Xi Jinping's father to establish them in Guangdong. And there's a very famous picture uh, from a few years ago that shows Xi Jinping standing up and reporting to, to Deng Xiaoping, who was sitting down. But in fact, in April 1979, when that work conference happened, Deng wasn't there for much of it. In fact, he was overseas. And Xi Jinping... Xi Jinping's father might not have ever actually reported on his own uh, to Deng. And we have the archival material now that shows that when Xi Jinping returned to Guangdong, he wasn't talking about how great Deng had been in the creation of the special economic zones. All he talked about was Hua Guofeng, that Hua Guofeng was the person who had, who had given approval for this. So that's just one of a series of examples whereby, you know, elements of the reform actually should be given credit to Hua Guofeng more than they should be given to Deng Xiaoping, which is one of the newer revisionist takes on this era that, that I present in the book. Yeah, I like this. Uh, I like this line you had with um, uh, Hua talking to an official who had just come back from the U.S. And uh, this guy was actually saying that inequality was more severe in China than it was in the United States and that it was necessary to study capitalism's achievement. Hua pauses and then says, I believe what you said is true. Um, but he also warned Xiang not to speak of such matters publicly. And then in his old years, sitting on his couch, uh, chain smoking cigarettes, watching some uh, some, uh, uh, CCTV report on uh, reform and opening that said it was Deng. He actually, you know, tells his uh, his niece or whatever that, um, in fact, 
I was the one who put this forward. So I'm, um, uh, yeah, that figure that you just mentioned, Shangnan, he would later go on to be the party boss of Fujian and was one of the closest mentors to Xi Jinping. Mm -hmm. And Shang was a fascinating individual because almost immediately after Xi Jinping moved to work in Fujian, he was uh, removed from power uh, due to these very dirty political machinations in Beijing because of a view that, that Shang was moving too far too quickly with reform. But that's another story. Uh, speaking of this, um, you know, uh, Huang and Deng clash, in the book you also mentioned how um, the Mao generation, you know, evaluate the two leaders, Hua Gofeng and, and Deng Xiaoping, when consider who's going to be the successor to Mao Zedong. Can you tell us a little more about that that episode? How does Mao view uh, Hua versus Deng Xiaoping? Yeah, so Mao used very interesting language to characterize the differences between Deng and Hua. So Mao, uh, on many occasions, would say things about Deng that accentuated his toughness, you know, being a uh, uh, either a fireworks factory, a steel factory, uh, that kind of thing. But he saw Hua as someone who could be a unifier. Uh, someone who might be able to work as a bridge between the old revolutionaries and these younger people who had skyrocketed to power during the Cultural Revolution. But I think that uh, when Mao picked Hua, he had reasons to do that, but I don't think that he was especially especially enthusiastic, precisely because, of, as we were talking about before, it was good that Hua could be a compromised figure and, and a unifier, uh, but he was problematic for other reasons. One was that... Uh, uh, Mao had once said to Hua this very interesting phrase saying, your full brain is full of agricultural issues. My whole brain is full of class struggle, right? Which, you know, is another interesting example that, that contradicts this view of Hua as being this, this sort of, you know, radical uh, inheritor to the, to the Maoist model. So, so Deng at some point decides that this whole Hua thing, it's not for him. Uh, and he wants to take back the, um, uh, take back the keys what um uh what sort of strategies does he employ so this was a prolonged period of political maneuvering between hua and dark so in that sense it's a little bit different from the other chapters right where there isn't a single moment where it's declared that uh ha, that hua needs to go and is punished it's it's a it's a long it's a longer period of, of maneuvering which 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 makes it quite interesting so the common view is that in 1978, at the work conference before the third plenum, there was this brief moment of inter-party democracy, whereby a group of reformers within the party, led by Deng Xiaoping, rejected Hua's focus on uh, continuing uh, the quasi-cultural revolution. And we now know that that is a wrong interpretation of, of what was going on at this time. And that, in fact, Hua and Deng were not really divided by differences uh, on, on, on policy. So Deng did different tools at different times to, to undermine Hua. Uh, very clearly in the book, he uses the military regularly. He will uh, introduce formulations and debates uh, that were... Uh, Targeted sometimes not quite at Hua Guofeng, but at a, at a Hua ally, Wang Dongxing, but which, uh, for complicated reasons, negatively affected Hua. Uh, on one interesting moment, when Hua was overseas, Deng met with a lot of military and political leaders to talk about uh, why Hua needed to go. Deng very cleverly would use pressure from lower levels to hurt Hua, 
right? So when the work conference was moving in a direction that was unexpected, uh, that was fine for Dung because it was good for him. But almost immediately after that, when people started criticizing other individuals who had been promoted rapidly during the Cultural Revolution, but it wasn't the right time for Dung for them to do that, he screamed at them and said, how dare you, you know, you do something like that. Uh, and then he would do similar things at other occasions where he would hint to people who thought they were having an open debate about questions like why, and then, you know, sort of manipulate them and push them in a particular direction. Let's talk about the two whatevers, which I think is the central, you know, if, if anyone learns anything about the fall of Hagwathong, it's like he was actually kind of Maoist and, you know, didn't want to change anything that, um, that Mao put forward. And Deng was actually the reformer who really wanted to put China on a different track. But in fact, you argue that um, there was no whateverist faction. Yeah. So usually when you bring up Hua Guofeng for people who have taken a class on China or have read about Chinese history, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is the two whatevers, right? And it was this formulation that appeared that was widely interpreted uh, within the elite to mean uh, a programmatic statement that old revolutionaries were not going to come back to work. There wasn't going to be fundamental change with regards to the economy. We're going to continue to hew very closely to Mao. But ultimately, that was not what happened. In fact, the formulation that we saw was not intended for those purposes, but to rally the party under Mao because it was the one stabilizing force that would allow the party to move forward united, even as it was tinkering with individual specific policies. But also, we need to contextualize those formulations with what Hua was actually doing. And as I was saying before, he was moving rapidly to rehabilitate these, uh, these old uh, revolutionaries. He was thinking very carefully about different formulations and policies with regards to the economy. He was, he was moving quickly to uh, improve China's research on, on science uh, and technology. So it was later on that uh, the story was told that Hua Guofang was a whateverist and had whateverist faction because that story was useful to justify the removal of Hua, which was ultimately primarily about other issues. Let, let's talk a little bit about how um, the CCP decided to um, decided what to do with Mao's um, was Mao's legacy for a second. Interestingly, Deng almost seems to do the same move that um, Khrushchev did of dumping on Mao a little more than everyone else seemed to be comfortable with. Well, we need to be careful with that. So after the third plenum, Deng recognized that some people were worried about the direction China was going. And he was sensitive to claims that he was engaged in demalification, that that Deng was a new Khrushchev and that Deng was was moving away from Mao's legacy. And especially over the last few weeks where people have been evaluating this new history resolution and whether it's more pro-Mao or more anti-Mao than the previous history resolution in 1980, unambiguously, that 1981 history resolution was intended to protect Deng from charges that he was rejecting Mao's legacy. And in fact, there were very common views within the elite that the party needed to go even further with regards to coming to terms with the mistakes of the Mao era. And Deng was always on the side of, no, we need to do more to protect Mao's legacy. 
So he was a conservative force, right? He was a pro-Mal force uh, um, at this time. We shouldn't we shouldn't see him as someone who uh, uh, was was a sort of Khrushchev. I think that that is a mistake. And what was motivating his um, uh, his view there? I think there were a couple things going on. The first was a fear that a full accounting of Mao would be destabilizing for the for the party. The other was that even though even though Hua was not cultivating leftist views within the party, they saw him as a potential standard bearer for their position, right? Because he was, after all, Mao's successor. So as the party was moving further in the direction of reform, those individuals who were skeptical about that were hoping that Hua would be someone that they could support. And so counterintuitively, precisely as Hua had reason to believe that he had new popularity upon which he could draw, that accelerated Deng's machinations to remove him. And we see that Deng was in particular worried about what was going on within the military, partly because the military was dominated by such leftist views because of, you know, what they had been, you know, the indoctrination they had gone through during the cultural, cultural revolution. But also, uh, Hua made a comment uh, that was considered leftist in a military context. And it was shortly after that that Deng Xiaoping gave this very famous speech uh, on August 18th, 1980, that people often go to and say that this is evidence that Deng really cared about inter-party democracy and overcoming feudal traditions, but that actually is taking it completely out of context and that the speech wasn't a programmatic view of, of political reform, but was actually just a, a way of talking about why Hua Guofeng needed to go. So a very revealing piece of evidence that supports that view is somebody went up to Zhao Ziyang, who would later on, of course, be the general secretary of the party during the Tiananmen Square protests, and said, well, didn't Deng actually care about political reform? Look at the speech. And Zhao said, no, he was just, you know, preparing for the removal of Hua Guofeng. And I think that's an interesting case also because it, you know, raises questions about how we interpret these documents and how careful we have to be with regards to context. Why didn't Hua fight back if he, you know, could have, you know, even even had folks in the military who were necessarily who weren't necessarily 100 percent on uh, on Deng's side? You know, we were talking a little bit about political science earlier, and there's a common view that it's a useful assumption that politicians are power maximizers and will do everything that they can to remain in power or get into power. But I think that takes the context of Leninist regimes and puts too much of a, a simplified view about the individuals who actually populate them. Because the people who were members of the party very often saw that organization as the meaning of their lives, right? Every single way that they understood their value uh, was was tied to the dedication that they had towards this project. So for someone like Hua Guofeng, he knew how devastating the Cultural Revolution had been to party stability. And when he saw Deng coming for him, he could have drawn upon a lot of different sources of power to combat what Deng was trying to do, right? He was Mao's initial successor, and this was a period where huge swaths of the party were still deeply, deeply, deeply loyal to Mao's memory. He was the formal head of the party, and this was a system that has always historically worked with a core, you know, that ultimately makes the final decisions. 
he could set the terms for what was discussed at whatever particular meeting. He could quash debate whenever he, whenever he wanted to. He wasn't entirely unpopular. He was seen as a consensual figure, right? So these people who had learned the lessons of the Mao era uh, could see value to someone who would listen to them. In particular, Ye Jianing, who was the third member of this, of this triumvirate, saw value in having someone like that. Deng was old. And they were facing a succession crisis. Hua would help solve this this generational um, succession issue that the party was facing. So why didn't Hua do something? Well, I think he understood that it would have been an uphill battle. Dong had a special relationship with the military. Dong had all of this revolutionary prestige. Uh, Mao had said all of these positive things about Dong over the years. And a power struggle would have been very destabilizing for the party, which had just gone through the Cultural Revolution. So I think that he made a choice to take a bigger picture view and do it for the good of the party and and not subject the CCP to another harrowing experience. So this idea coming back to we talked we spoke a little while back of Mao thinking that like no one but a son of a bitch can run a Leninist regime. Um we had two instances we've talked about over the past 45 minutes where you know there was a moment where everyone had just seen the excesses of what, you know, one man uh, authoritarian rule can do to their nation. But, you know, the, the way both of these games shake, shuck out was that we ended up having, uh, you know, a single, a single leader in charge. Is there something about Leninist regimes where collective leadership is just not a steady state and there, there's always going to be someone who sort of pushes for the top and you have everyone who's like a little more conscientious uh stepping aside because they know that this that um uh kind of taking really taking it to the mat can be so deleterious and that type of person is not one to um uh, to put up a fight in the first place what do these cases tell us about um about where power ultimately falls um during these succession crises there is an extraordinary document that is now available in Chinese that shows discussions led by Zhao Ziyang about political reform. And it is extraordinarily reflective about the nature of Leninist regimes and the dangers of lack of institutionalization. And Zhao Ziyang even says, uh, you know, in our culture, it's problematic because people say one thing to your face and they say something completely different behind your back and said, you know, the system we have right now where it's not exactly clear who gets to make what decision when in terms of the Politburo Central Committee, it's fine when there isn't a moment of political contestation or a crisis, but as soon as there is one, uh, it can be very dangerous, right? And there was hope that Dong would be the individual who would use his personal authority which was so, which was so extraordinary, uh, to help create that system. But Dung wasn't interested. Dung was someone who thought that the advantage of the CCP was that you had the decisiveness inherent to a leader-friendly system, right? And he talked about, for example, uh, the war in Afghanistan, which is an interesting anecdote, as showing that the Soviet Union could just have a meeting very quickly and invade another country. And he contrasted that with the United States, where you had. Um, uh, you know, three different branches. And he said, you don't even know who actually gets to make the final decisions, right? So that wasn't how he thought about it, even though there were people within the party who thought that a different model was possible. So whether there is a series of contingent moments that would allow us, you know, to get there, I don't know. 
but the whole story of the book that you've read is just how leader friendly these organizations, uh, often are, and just how many different tools and traditions, uh, that somebody who wants to dominate can draw upon, uh, to be the core. So just to sort of organize our thinking a little bit in the book and also in your thesis, you talk about this uh, economic model versus the authority model as a way to think about um, how how elites gain power and lose power. I wonder if you can talk that talk about that a little more. Um, what are the two models and why you prefer one over the other? Yeah, so I use this term economic model in the book to group the set of political science arguments about authoritarian regimes that have a elective affinity. So they have this view that one, it's about exchange, right? Uh, competing policy platforms or patronage that it's about, uh, selecting for a leader with a coalition or a selectorate within a, a generally defined set of rules. And they don't really talk about the military or political police playing a special role. And this uh, is especially the case for Leninist regimes, where there's a view that there's a taboo against, uh, you know, military control. And so to argue uh, against that model, I used um, a different set of hypotheses that I grouped together because of their elective uh, affinities under, under this authority model, which essentially says that uh, because there's lack of institutionalization, we see a somewhat different set of, of, of parameters. One is that uh, the cachet for whether you get people to support you or not isn't based on your policy platform. It's about uh, you know these historical antagonisms, compromising material, contributions to the revolution, mischaracterizing the positions of others, and that these contests aren't fought in a defined you know institutional environment. And that because these rules are ambiguous, ultimately the the arbiter is. Uh, uh, the power ministries, the political police and the, uh, and the military. And I think that this goes beyond a little bit, you know, a simple political science argument, because it's common for people to think about these systems as, as naturally being about exchange. And when we read the news and people look at China, there's often a hope, uh, or a, a suspicion that if Xi Jinping is too unpopular, uh, either because of the content of his policies or because he's seen as incompetent that there is a mechanism within the party for a course correction, for an elite revolt, where there would be another so-called third plenum that would allow these reformers to emerge triumphant. So I think there's a practical implication uh, to this, this different view of looking at politics as well. So the idea that power transitions are dangerous, um, which you just alluded to, Joseph, it's not just dangerous domestically. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Deng's war in Vietnam and how you think that these sort of domestic power struggles may have uh, played into his decision to invade in 1979? Yeah, so this is a really interesting case. The preparations to invade Vietnam took place in 1979, and the war, of course, excuse me, uh, the preparations for the war took place in 1978, and the war uh, happened in 1979. And it's very clear that this decision had a big impact on the relationship between Dong and Hua. So Deng was one of the only people within the elite who wanted to fight this war. There was broad skepticism about whether this was a good choice or not. But the war was fought anyways, and it demonstrated very clearly who the PLA listened to. The PLA listened to Deng. Now that creates immediately three hypotheses. One is that Deng did it for purely power political reasons. One is that he did it both 
because he thought that there was a need for China to do it and for power political reasons, or because it was really was primarily concerned about the international environment. But it is very clear that the implications were that it showed that the PLA obeyed him. And there is very strong circumstantial evidence based on when the choices were made, how he went about engineering the decision to suggest that the domestic situation was something that he had on his mind. So the idea being that he started this war potentially as a way to show everyone else in the elite that he was the one who had all the cards and everyone else should um, uh, should should rally around him and not uh, and not dung for what he at that point didn't know wasn't going to be uh, a confrontation between the two. So there's no smoking gun and party historians I've talked to differ on whether or not it was primarily because of, of Hua Guofeng. Uh, but ultimately, it certainly is the case that it, it demonstrated within the party that the People's Liberation Army uh, sent to Dong. But what's also very interesting, too, is that the failure of the PLA in the war in Vietnam didn't really arrest Dong's uh, uh, continuing climb to the top of the party hierarchy, which also, as I was saying, you know, challenges these views that there is a natural tendency for people to be punished politically for incompetence in, in, these, in these types of systems. That sort of brings me to the question of how a um, how a Leninist regime actually changed to make you know meaningful policy reform. You remember uh, Wang Qishan, the current uh, vice president of China, famously asked, "Can a surgeon operate on himself?" In other words, how can a leader reform the party, which is also the source of his power or her power, right? So, what does your research tell you about how Leninist uh, regimes or Leninist leaders? execute policy reforms, if at all, or is it all about power struggle? Yeah, so I'm not convinced, actually, that it's so hard to force the party in directions that are broadly unpopular because they will remove you. I actually don't quite think that this is how these systems work. At the same time, it's really hard to reform entrenched interests just because uh, if you don't have elections and you don't have the rule of law and you don't have courts uh, and you don't have, you know, an organization above the party to force the party uh, to do things. And even if you do have a top leader who's not worried about their political position, it can still be very hard uh, to make changes. Maybe maybe closing on the sort of, Joseph, you want to well, medit- meditate a little longer on the importance of actually understanding these regimes to the best of one's ability. What are the kind of practical implications for policymakers of having, you know, slightly more accurate mental models of how these regimes sort of interact and resolve internally, um, even if, you know, it is kind of impossible to to really understand uh, exactly exactly what is going on? Well, you've seen hopes that you could construct an international environment that would trigger a choice within the party that the current grand strategy is a failure, thereby finding someone else other than Xi Jinping that would be more conducive to American interests. And I think that one of the things that my book shows is that, first of all, when you're looking at these systems from the outside at the time, it's really hard to get get it wrong as opposed to what's really motivating people in the situation within Zhongnan Hai. Uh, and the other is that these systems depend on a lot of things and not just policy or policy failure. So 
when it comes to, you know, shaping your policy and whether or not there's an element to it that includes, you know, shaping decisions within the elite with regards to whether you pick one leader or not, um, you know, that would be a reason for caution. Having said that though, the fact that policy differences might not, you know, be decisive, it doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, you can't shape, you know, the, the choices of, of a country based, based on what you, what you do, uh, uh, in the relationship. Um, and then the final thing to keep in mind is that in the book, uh, we see almost no evidence of fundamental differences on foreign policy within leaders. And, uh, that means that even if there was a new leader in China, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they would be, you know, any different from Xi Jinping with regards to how they think about the United States. Yeah, that was one of my big takeaways, too, is like kind of assuming that whatever's after Xi is going to be more cuddly than him uh, seems to be less of a um, uh, not a not something anyone should should um, uh, should hang their hats on, particularly when you can kind of get this dung dung type scenario where actually starting a war um as a way to sort of show that you're the boss is a um uh, it, it, it is a real tactic that um that has been using that has potentially been used in the past or um at least uh, if if maybe it wasn't used for that reason the um uh the sort of uh, legacy of that decision in helping solidify uh dung as the leader was um uh, is is very clear and probably front and center of uh of of the minds of whoever is going to be jockeying for power when uh, when she exits the stage Maybe let's close, Joseph, on like any any career or life advice you have for those, you know, who, who want to follow follow this path of, you know, being a foreign party historian. What um uh, what words of wisdom do you have? Be patient, have an open mind, let uh people convince you that your previous perspectives were wrong. Be uncomfortable with yourself as to whether or not you looked at everything possible. Turn every page. You never know which particular uh, document is going to be meaningful to you. Just because you spent a few days reading stuff that wasn't relevant doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't have read it. If you weren't able to determine that on the outside, uh, don't be discouraged uh, when that kind of thing happens because when you really do find something that changes your view, uh, it's really, really, really exciting. Uh, Joseph, let's we'll put the um, uh, your 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 Jiaoziang PDF in the in the show notes um uh just to um uh, give folks a taste of the um uh, the 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 highs accompanied by some of the lows uh that joseph just alluded to um in um uh in, in reading these sorts of things um uh last thing joseph i put a song after every episode is there like a huagua fung song um can i think about that I mean, there must, I mean, I don't like know. the gang of, like, I, I do, like, I've done the Culture Revolution songs, but, like, if there is, like, a, whatever's, like, maybe there's some song on the radio in, like, 1977. Um, yeah, we it, should, I don't know, there's, like, revolutionary operas directed by Jiang Qingyun uh, herself, so. You could do, yeah, you could do, like, a young body scene. Right, like, like white-haired girl. Okay. Red detachment yeah. of, of women, right, that kind of stuff. Sha Jia Bang, that's my favorite. Yeah. All right, we'll throw, we'll throw that just for you, Lizzie. Joseph Trigian, thank you so much for being a part of China Talk. Oh, this is a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
经艰辛，从今江南深入的好，解放几根雨，村庄红旗举出歌声浪，百姓们才见天日光。你们号称忠义救国军，没什么见日头不发一枪。我问你，救的是哪一国？没什么。不救中国主动洋，没什么专门袭击共产党。你忠在哪里？你在何方？你们是汉奸，狗狗卖国贼，少年无耻，杠精天理。Yeah.